Blog Talk Radio. Well, good evening and welcome once again to Madam Perry Salon. I am your host, your groove mistress, and your spiritual advisor, Madam Perry. But you can call me Jan, Jennifer, Perry, JP. I don't care. I'm just happy that you're here, and I am too. Thank you very much to everyone who's been leaving uh, reviews for the podcast so that I'll know more of what you like. on um, Leaving reviews on Blog Talk Radio, Apple, Stitcher. Spotify and I'm following. Thank you so much because you helped me to continue to have fantastic guests like I've got been having. Well, ever. I've never had a bad guest uh, like I always have and like I've got coming up and like I've got tonight. A couple of announcements. By the way, um, Franny Goldie. Remember Franny Goldie was on here about a year ago. Uh, songwriter. You know her for songs like Selena's Dreaming, Pussycat Dolls, Stick With You. And of course, <clears throat> the Commodore's Night Shift, and Franny has a clothing line. Um, so just go to her website, F-R-A-N-N-E-G-O-L-D-E.com, FrannyGoldie.com, and she's got some uh, new things out for fall and some new leisure wear. So go there, and when you get ready to check out, your code is M-P-S, the initials for Madam Perry Salon, and Franny's company will have a little discount for you. <clears throat> and that's very nice, just like her. Um, recently, we had Brianne Davis. You probably know. Uh, she's an actor, director, screenwriter, and author. She was on to talk about her book, Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. And she, it is a great book. Go ahead and get it. And also, uh, my client was on that show, too, co-hosting my client, Jennifer Irwin, with her book, uh, Address the Color of the Moon. And it follows her first book, Address the Color of the Sky, about the character Prudence, who goes into rehab for sex addiction and comes out. Uh, and so the second book talks about her and her friends when they leave rehab and try to navigate negotiate, especially the destruction they may have left behind in their lives with their new skills. Now, tonight's show, oh, my gosh, everybody's asking about this, and I'm as excited as you are, if not more. Um, I am so thrilled. One of our favorite guests, he's been here before. He's got his own seat here in the Genie Bottle, Doug Bremner. Doug, welcome back. Thanks. It's great to be back, Jennifer. I am thrilled. Doug, you're, the, you're, the, you're like we had, uh, professor, physician, researcher, writer, film producer, and director. Uh, you, you're director of the Emory Clinical Neuroscience Research Unit and staff psychiatrist at Atlanta Vet Clinic, Decatur. You know, you would think even before the pandemic or with it, we would run into each other somewhere, but uh, you're just so busy. Keeping busy, keeping out of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably too busy and too tired not to. And But I'm thrilled this time uh, you've brought someone that you, you know I've been wanting to have on the show for a long time, a t- 
attorney and legal analyst, veteran of the legal industry with emphasis on civil rights, catastrophic loss defense, and criminal law. Been practicing for 35 years, although I don't know, to look at her, I don't know, maybe you both would have went to college when you were like 12 or 14. <laughs> I would believe that. Um, she's a regular contributing yeah. legal analyst on major TVs like CNN, MSNBC, HLN, all of those good things. And that is, of course, your sister, Ann Bremner. And welcome. Such a pleasure. Thanks for having both of us. Well, I am thrilled. You two have a book together. Now, I'm so psyched. You two have a book together. Actually, uh, Anne, you wrote this book about cases. Uh, the book is called Justice in the Age of Judgment. Oh, uh-huh. oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that says it all. That's, uh, that's what we deal with now, and it's different from anything we've ever dealt with before as far as justice and uh-huh. cases and, and people and public opinion. And Doug, um, does, she, does she recruit you on this book? Well, Jennifer, I've, you know, I've always been kind of interested in true crime, and especially with the Amanda Knox case. Um, I was, uh, you know, as you know, I, I write a blog, and originally the blog was, um, you know, a lot of times writers are told by their editors to write a blog to publicize their book. And the first book that I was trying to promote was Before You Take That Pill, Why the Drug Industry May Be Bad for Your Health. I think I've talked to you about it, that in the past on yeah. this show. and. Yeah, and so I was um, I was writing on that blog, and and the Medanox case kind of came up, and so I was trying to learn Italian because my wife is Italian, so I started writing in Italian about the case, and so then I got kind of involved in the case, so I actually got a lot more into it than than you might have expected, and and um, so I had that background, and then I actually wrote a screenplay about the case, although I never really intended to. Um, try and sell it or promote it or anything because the case at that time, the trial was still ongoing. So I, I had researched the case quite a bit and, and, um, and then, Anne had this book about the Medinox case. And, and um, so she, you know, she asked me to take a look at it and, and to kind of contribute. And, and, and then the book kind of grew from there and it went from just being about a Medinox to, to this whole topic of, of high profile criminal cases and the effect of social media and um, and whatnot on that. And Amanda Knox was really the first high profile criminal case that brought into social media in the way that, you know, that we now have with the polarization of Facebook and, and that's bled over into, you know, the political um, races and like in 2020, et cetera. But, but that was sort of the first case where we had one group called the you know, Chen Tisi and then the, the Copa Vici who thought that she was guilty and then the innocent people who were, thought she was innocent and there's sort of two camps and people writing on, on forums and whatnot. So, you know, that the book, the, the Mandanax case was a good starting point, but then sort of we, as I got involved in helping to write, you know, we I wrote some chapters on the West Memphis Three and and um, on other cases that we can talk about more later um, if people are not familiar with them. Okay, and I think the first time you were on my show, it was one of my first, maybe the second or third live show I did, because my guests were you and Candace Dempsey, who wrote Murder in Italy, because mm-hmm. she was a journalist there at the time, right. and, and everybody's beloved mutual friend here, Art Harris. I think it was just the, uh, all of us uh-huh. talking about it. And yet it's still, and of course, we'd also, you know, I never want to mention Amanda Knox without mentioning, you know, Meredith Kirscher, because we never want to forget her 
and, and all right. of this because, you know, that, that's a heartbreak for her family, too. So I don't want yes. them to think that we forget them. Um, Rafael Celestino and um, was that right? Doug, did I pronounce that correctly? Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, Celestino. Uh-huh. Okay. He's the, the boyfriend. Okay. And Ann and I actually yeah. did a panel with him um, a couple of years ago. Wow. Yeah, we took him to Prague. And he gave a speech. Yeah. It's very moving. Oh, imagine. Yeah. You, you never know. Sometimes your life could just change dramatically uh-huh. in just uh, minutes. So um, that was the first time. And yet people still are concerned. People think about it, talk about it, especially now that Amanda's, uh, I think I saw her, was it the New York Times, you know, uh, again, she has a baby. But what what do you think captured people? I mean, the entire world was riveted to this when it happened. What do you think with all the murders? Do you want me to answer that or Doug? Yeah. Oh, I think I think sometimes these cases, like look at the Lacey Peterson, the Scott Peterson case. Why was that so riveting? Or Gabby Petito. I mean, what captures people? You know, how do they identify with somebody? Do they identify with Meredith? Did they identify with an American? You know, abroad. Did they feel like Amanda was, there were, the prosecutor, Mignini, had said that she acted inappropriately for Italian standards, you know, but the, in, if she's on trial in an international murder case, we don't see that with a female on trial that young, especially when they bring in supposed sex rituals, which were not true, um, you know, and more salacious types of facts. And it became kind of a mystery. I think the most important point that caught people's attention was, how could somebody that looks this angelic be that demonic? I mean, how come we can't see that? I mean, how could she look, they used to call her angel face. How could she look so pure, be from a nice place like Seattle, from a nice family, nice background education, and then how could she turn and do this? That fascinates mm-hmm. people. But the fact is she didn't. No, and but but when it came out, it was presented, and and people were buying it like crazy. Yes. Yeah, and, and I think you know, Doug and I both worked on this case, <clears throat> Doug tirelessly, but you know, it was like turning around a super tanker of misinformation, salacious information. It just wasn't true. Yeah, it's like once it gets out that you know, once the cows leave that that pasture. You know, and yep. you can't unring the bell. Uh, right. It's out there. And you're right. Say, well, angel face, American girl, she looks so innocent, but she, satanic rituals, maybe, murder. You know, I guess everybody thinks, oh, yeah, that, sure, yeah. I mean, think of Patty McCormick and the bad seed. You know, you're thinking <laughs> anything. Right. Think it's not <laughs> what it looks like. So, um, right. And, can you and the fear? I just think about, especially rereading it in your book. And by the way, Justice in the Age of Judgment. Um, so I type from Amanda Knox to Brett Kavanaugh, Murder to Me Too, Trials and Tribulations in the Court of Public Opinion. Guys, reading it again, and, and I just go back through it, and yet even and now I think even more so how terrified Raphael and Amanda must have been. Yeah, and and Amanda served, as you know, four years in prison. Mm-hmm. So did Raphael, and and he served part of it in solitary confinement. He said he became psychotic. Mm. Well, you, I, you can see that, can't you, Doug? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the effects of, of putting people in isolation is terrible. Um, I don't think people realize how, you know, the, the human beings just aren't meant to be isolated. And isolation means having someone alone in a six-by-eight for 23 hours a day and only being allowed to get out and maybe run around the, the yard by yourself for 20 minutes and and not really being allowed to have any interaction. And, you know, the human brain just isn't set up for that. And Raffaele is a – he's just a normal guy. You know, he doesn't have any mental illness or anything. It's just mm-hmm. – it, it can happen to anyone. Yeah. But most people just sort of get – thrown in jail and forgotten about it's kind of rare that someone like Raffaele gets out and you know is declared innocent and so not only did the the Italian courts eventually say that he was not guilty the Italian courts have this capacity to say that someone is actually innocent and that's what they found in the case of both the Mandanox and Raffaele Telecito they said exactly. that they were innocent and, and, of the crime right and we don't have that in the United States you know we have not guilty like the Scottish verdict not proven but they mm-hmm. they were exonerated in Italy. They they like Doug said they've got that extra level, and that's what they found. The highest court in Italy found them to be that they exonerated both of them and said they were absolutely innocent. Mm-hmm. And know, one of the uh, one of the points that we make in the in the book is that you know we wrote had a couple of extra chapters about the West Memphis Three and then also the Duke Lacrosse case, and those are cases where there were. American prosecutors that ran off the rails. In the case of Duke Lacrosse, it was Mike Nifong who was running for election for district attorney and was using the case to try and get publicity. And then the case of the West Memphis Three, it was the prosecutors in West Memphis, Arkansas, who, um, similar to Mignini, sort of created this story about a satanic cult, and these three teenagers were involved in the satanic cult, and they leaked this to the press in order to sort of try and win their case in the press and they prejudiced the jury and the West Memphis three went to jail for 20 plus years before they were finally, um, you know, released. So the point is that these things can happen and, and, um, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, uh, limited to one country. Right. And, and Mike Nifong was, was disbarred and prosecuted and he went to jail, the prosecutor in Duke Lacrosse. Okay, I got to say, it's going to skip over what my next question was, because that makes me think, or that reminds me of uh, today, I watched uh, a clip of you, Anne, uh, and, well, it was you talking with Tucker Carlson about the Duke Lacrosse case. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we we had a little smackdown about it, and I and, took the prosecution side. Well, I, I got to tell you, especially after reading about how, you know, you studied and how you prepared and the things that helped you prepare uh, to present cases in court. Uh, after reading that and then watching you in there, I thought, hey, this is she's she's good. She's got him. And he's not even sure what happened, you know, because he would talk, <laughs> you know, you would say, because we know we know how he is. And and then you said you would go, yeah. That's, well, you know, if this were, if this were, if this was a trial right now, me and you, you won, because you don't <laughs> listen, because you're not listening. <laughs> Man, right. she's good. She's smooth because it's not hateful. It's not mean. That's smooth. <laughs> Thank you. That's legit. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but and you can see her get kind of confused, like, oh, see, she's admit. No way, she didn't admit. You know. So. <laughs> 
That was that was because uh, you talked about the different ways that you prepared and listened, and even the fact of of learning. Uh, uh, you're a classical pianist, and and you you uh, taught uh-huh. and you've uh, competed, toured and competed nationally. Uh-huh. About how all that plays into how you uh, prepare to open. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I I always say I never lose because I'm too insecure to lose. I over prepare <laughs> completely. <laughs> <laughs> and I do lose sometimes. Okay. Well, the um the chapter 4, the title is First Impressions Are Lasting. Mm-hmm. And it's safe to say that now, at least definitely in the last 10 to 15 years, first impressions are um louder and more ubiquitous than ever before. Is it? Yes. Yeah, that's you know, why I think this an... book is really a book for oh, the, ahead, time, the current times. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and there's a there's an unsighted study that says 80% of jurors make up their mind in opening statement, and they never change their mind. They 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 basically filter all the evidence through what they first heard, and that's kind of a theme of this book too. Is that you know that that's really what we're dealing with politically in the media, in our trials, you know, and, and in our lives. Mhm. Yeah. So, yeah, you talk about you know you can see you can you can you can watch the jurors and tell what they're thinking. Uh, mhm. Not in a psychic way, more of a let's see. Now, Doug Doug knows that I call myself an armchair sociologist until I went to college, right. and now I'm and now I'm an armchair ethnographer because I have a <laughs> degree in journalism. So. So, yeah, so you do watch people, you you know, and I'm sure you learn every little tell and, and tick that lets you know maybe their body language. Yeah, I, I was just watching the closing arguments in the Rittenhouse trial, oh. and they were, one, one of the anchors was talking about how well the rebuttal went for the prosecution, and then for Court TV, and then one of the reporters that was in the courtroom said the jurors were fidgeting, they were looking down, you know, so it can sound good, you know, but then it's... In reality, it didn't sound like that was a really engaged juror, at least from what the reporter said, you know. And so, you know, that's it'll be interesting to see what their verdict is. So they're going to go back and deliberate starting tomorrow morning at nine. Mm. So, this um, let's talk about some of the cases here. Um, you, you brought some old cases in. You talked about where, you know, if you had been around back then, maybe you could help people like uh, Francis Farmer. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and and reading this, it kind of took me on a, a not a sentimental journey, but it did take you back reading the stories. Uh, talk about and anything that just any story that you particularly and and you too, Doug, either of you that you were particularly wanting to bring uh, uh, more honesty or more truth or more information about to people who. Maybe already had a a I don't want to say prejudice, but already had a very different view. Well, well Francis Farmer, I'll oh, go ahead, Beck. No, go ahead. I was going to say Francis Farmer. We picked that because she she reminds reminds me of a man She they're both from West Seattle. Both I think were vilified, misunderstood, beautiful. Um, and kind of iconic Seattleites, and of course 
Kurt Cobain named his daughter after Frances Farmer and wrote a song about about her. What was it called? Frances Farmer will have, will have her revenge on Seattle. Is that right, Doug? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Frances so, Farmer has her revenge on Seattle. Yeah. Revenge on Seattle. But, but she'd written an essay called "God Is Dead" and 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 won a prize for that, but was you know completely vilified. She you know, went to Hollywood, she did well, but she had bipolar disorder, she, you know, she had, you know, mental illness, apparently, and of course, she was committed in Western State Hospital for most of her adult life. She was raped there, that some say that she had, was given a, a lobotomy, she didn't get out until she was in her 50s, which was old back then, mm-hmm. and so kind of this misunderstood person, you know, that really had her civil rights just, you know, wrecked. Um, and, and because she was basically vilified and misunderstood and beautiful. And I, I've always, she's always reminded me of Amanda Nod. She, you know, she was committed. Yeah. Western, Western state is not a great place to be. Yeah, go ahead, Doug. Yeah, and the other point about Frances Farmer is that she was really the first, you know, kind of an early case of someone being victimized by the media. And, and so, you know, mm-hmm. people say, well, what's the difference between, you know, the age of Francis Farmer and, and Amanda Knox and um, and O.J. Simpson, you know, who would be another one. It's just like the same thing was happening that, that pe- the press was writing stories about her. And we went back and got some of the articles from the archives. And, you know, they were quoting her saying, you know, kind of what was really just sounded like uh, kind of defiant, kind of, you know, individualistic type statements. And the press was was sort of painting it that she was this sort of lunatic that was out of control and 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 that she needed to be committed to a you know psychiatric hospital by the by the psychiatrist and have her individual rights taken away but you know it wasn't even clear that she even had a mental disorder I mean nobody really knows yeah. but um, mm-hmm. you know she was just she was just sort of defiant in a kind of a unique spirit and I think that's why Kurt Cobain was sort of drawn to her but you know so that the same process is occurring, but now it's like people say, well, what's changed? We had the same process where the media is, is depicting people in a negative way. The media was, you know, writing articles about Amanda Knox showing this kitchen, this bathroom full of what looked like blood when it was actually just luminol, which is the chemical that's used to detect blood, but it's very misleading. So it's just like what happened with Francis Farmer, except now it's like they're throwing gasoline on the fire and it's an accelerant. And then we have Facebook and social media where people are, jumping to immediate conclusions based on what they might have read or seen on the internet. And, um, and so things just sort of, you know, get out of, get out of control. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and, you know, I think today people, people today don't realize, um, you know, we can talk about, you know, me too and women's rights and so forth, but Women, especially young women today, have no idea what it would be like in the time of Francis Farmer or later. You know, and I think it was in um, Joan Rivers' first book, um, Enter Talking, where she said, you know, she wanted to be a comedian, but she had to go to school. She had to get a job as a secretary because her father said, if, she, if you are going to pursue this, I'll have you put in a mental hospital. And back then, it could be done that easily. You know, just the father yes. just said, my daughter, she's crazy. And that's what happened Absolutely. to Francis Farmer. The parents basically said, yeah. you know, she's uh, uncontrollable and, you know, take her away. Yep, it was her mom. And, uh, yeah, but so. Nobody, no, nobody at Western ever, you know, lifted a finger to let her out. I mean, nobody ever 
said, hey, maybe she shouldn't be here. I mean, there was mm-hmm. no, you know, there, there was none of that. I mean, mm-hmm. and she was there for decades. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so she, she will, she will get revenge. I know. <laughs> well, those, those fires are going to get a little further up, and she's going to get it. I, I do believe. Yeah. The, uh, now, you you really don't, though, really, guys, in this book, you really did show me some different sides of things that I hadn't seen. Because, um, you know, there's a couple of different, as you mentioned, uh, the two TV movies about Betty Broderick. And yeah. the one with Meredith Baxter Burney. Uh-huh. Yeah. And one on Netflix. That, yeah, yeah. That one I have not seen, but I remember the other is like, you just think, they were very different. And yet, you, when you were describing in the book, you guys talk about the, you know, let's put the replacement wife, you know, the one that sold Tupperware door oh. to door, carried the kids while her husband's going to Princeton, Harvard, all this. And then uh-huh. when he's through and powerful, she's maybe kind of worn out. Oh, yeah. From supporting him all these and years. Then- and that new wife looked exactly like she did in 1969. <laughs> she yeah. got married. Yeah. That's cold-blooded. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. 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 We're driven to extremes. So, I mean, when people hear you, there's always this more about, oh, how, how could she? She just walked in and she just killed him. But there's so much more that tears people apart emotionally with that. Was yeah, that a difficult yeah. story? Was that a difficult case to yeah. write about? Mm-hmm. I I really liked her, you know, I, and I, you know, she got married in the '60s. She she put in Princeton through Princeton, Harvard, you know. She's got babies on each hip and selling Tupperware from the bus, and you know, and she was, you know, the perfect wife, and she raises four kids, and her license plate said, load them up on her big suburban, you know, and <laughs> and when she turned 40, he said she was fat and boring, and he didn't love her anymore, and and he ran off with the replacement, and I think a lot of women, especially women that got married in the 60s, looked at that and said, I don't know if I blame you, because he took the kids, he bankrupt her, took the house, put her in jail a few times, in jail, um, she got nothing in the in the divorce to speak of, you know, and she saw this as a contract. She had put him through everything, and they built this life together. And by the way, he was super rich by then. He was a plaintiff, med mal lawyer, and the president of the bar in San Diego. And so he was also a, a doctor. Yeah, he's a doctor and a lawyer. Exactly, he went to medical school and, and law school. And I, she just snapped. She just one day. You know, she just couldn't deal with it. And when I went to see her the last time in the prison down there, by the way, the Manson girls were all in there. Leslie Van Houten was in there, Patricia Krenwinkel. You know, we're sitting, you know, right there in the dining room with me and with Betty. Susan Atkins had been there, but she died in jail. But, you know, all of Manson's followers. But she, when I was in the waiting room, there was a magazine with an award. It was the Daniel T. Broderick Award for Ethics. And it was the front, it was a full page ad. Mm. And I told her, I told her, she goes, oh my God, to the figures, you know. <laughs> that, that that had to cut. Oh, Deep yeah. to see there that. Yeah. While she's in there, you know, <laughs> now his wife's a lady who lunch, she lunches with Leslie Van Houten. So, you know, 
Let, Leslie uh, wouldn't want to sit with her. We, we, wanted, oh. we wanted to sit with Leslie because there's no room, and she said no. <gasps> oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I told Betty, let's not She's mess with her. She's too good for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bet, Betty's the kind of gal that everyone brings their babies to on visitation day. Oh. Everyone loves her. Everyone in the prison loves her, but not except for Leslie Van Houten. But she said having her go up against her husband was like putting a wimp in the ring with Muhammad Ali because he had all the all the influence of all the judges and all the lawyers and everything, you know, on his side. And um, and then if she got unruly, since he's a doctor, he could just declare her mentally ill and put her in a mental institution. Oh yeah, he he had her committed, (laughs) like Manson's farmer. I forgot about that. He did have her committed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he had her committed. Mm -hmm. Mm. <laughs> I Man. forgot about that, Doug. Poor That's Betty. But they did—they yeah. did a Netflix series on her. You know, she—she's been up for parole a few times, and they keep turning her down. And you know, but there's a lot of support for her too. You know, when I've told Betty, I represent people I've represented Betty. They go, "Oh, I love Betty." You know, a lot of people Aww. like look at what she, what happened, and they like her. So that's kind of a you know that one's a little bit split. You know, on the media. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> we we had a lot more uh, trouble when we were writing the book with the Mary Kay Letourneau. Oh yeah, she's, oh she's yeah. She's the one that um, had the, the affair with her twelve-year-old student. Yeah, uh, he was thirteen yep. by the time they had sex. He was thirteen, Doug. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, I see. No, that oh, makes I, a I need another that. <laughs> he's a teenager. <laughs> yeah, he's a teenager. <laughs> yeah, yes. that, that, was, that because... was our top, uh, our editor, who's younger, I mean, younger, younger than I am, um, she didn't like that story, No, you know, very Why much, not? because I, I think because, you know, like, when I tried that case, it was in 2001, and it was a 12-week week trial, I tried to get Cy Vance, who's now the um, Manhattan District Attorney, but... Mm-hmm. But I, I quoted a Hollywood producer that said, "If you squint your eyes, it all makes sense." They were in love. They're gonna get married. You know, they got kids, and they did. They got married, and nothing would keep them apart. So that was my theory of the case. You get people mm-hmm. now, you know, will say, "Oh, she's just a pedophile." You know, how can you, how can you even, how can you even look at this case in any other way? And, but she served seven years in prison. She served her time. You know, and mm-hmm. they got married. They were together for decades. The kids did great, two daughters, and she just died recently, and he was with her. Mm. Yeah, that's, you know, you also, uh, in this book, you describe her in ways that I hadn't read before, because all I ever saw, all we got fed was um, this, you just think of it as a selfish woman. She's got a husband and kids, and then she's teaching, she's a school teacher, and then this 12-year-old, uh, soon 13 year old love why can't they keep apart from each other and you know uh uh-huh. but then you described her as and and these are these are not your words i'm just trying to remember the feeling i got reading about that it's, it's like she uh-huh. almost had like a childlike heart of right love. Mm-hmm. She, she was like michael jackson she was like a case of arrested development she's very uh-huh. childlike mm-hmm and so, one of the things when I was doing research on, on the case is that, you know, there's sort of this animated sort of offhand comment about how something had happened when she was 
the child where she was blamed for the death of her brother. And I went up and and I went and looked it up, and I found an article about it, which is it was actually very, because you know, as you know, Jennifer, I'm you know, I might I'm a psychiatrist specializing in psychological trauma, so I'm always looking for a, something from people's childhood to explain why they do the crazy things that they do. But right. in her case, that she was actually from a wealthy family, and her father was a, this this ultra conservative senator or, or congressman from California, uh-huh. and the mother had left her with like the little kids and just gone off shopping or something and she was only like in sixth grade and she's there with her two brothers and they have a swimming pool and like the three-year-old kind of drowned in the swimming pool but she was blamed for it but she was only in sixth grade and just left with these little kids so it was that kind of you know sometimes with psychological trauma we say when this trauma happens that the mental development stops Mm-hmm. At, the, at the age when it happened, and guess what? She was how old was she when that happened? She was twelve years old, just like uh, ah. just like the boy that that she had the affair with. So she was kind of mentally yeah. like a twelve year old, and you could point it all back to that episode where where her little brother drowned, and they didn't even know that he drowned until the mother came home, and it's like, where's Davy or whatever his name was, and he was Davy was at the bottom of the pool. Wow. And her that mother her, her mother used to debate the ERA against Gloria Allred on television because she was against it. And mm-hmm. her dad her dad was in the John Birch Society and and he ran for president at some point. Two of her brothers or three of them went to Stanford and two worked in the Trump administration. And then her mom would always tell her, you know, a lady never leaves the house without lipstick. And the house was only perfect in the front rooms, and the rest of the place was a mess. And it just mattered oh. what you look like and how you present. That's, I mean, that's really what her mom was like. Very, wow. and very critical of her. Very critical of Mary. Hmm. Mean. She was mean. Some, there are some mean mothers. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and it, and I mean, it she makes a difference. <laughs> she was close with her dad. And so her dad was diagnosed with cancer when she got together with Billy, and Billy was a sympathetic ear, and her husband was not. It was a bad combination of circumstances, but that's, she was going through a very bad time. Her husband was having an affair, you know, all these kinds of things. Mm. Yeah. And the Billy was very case, old it's like, it's, like, uh, it's like sort of, you know, you have this, this sort of, it's almost like a dirty movie or something. It's a little kid sitting in the class looking at the teacher thinking, oh, I love her, you know, and then and then it's like, like what we wrote in the book, we said, you know, she teacher. kind of crossed the boundary. <laughs> but she not only crossed the boundary, yeah. she like obliterated all the. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I told, I told my jury, I told my jury, I said she's every schoolboy's dream. You know, hot for teacher, homework was never quite like this. And you know, Mrs. <laughs> Robinson, summer forty-two, they all nodded their heads. I had ten men on the jury. I represented the police. You know, and we won. And we, they were trying to say we should have done something to stop this. You know, and the jurors are like. Oh yeah, she. I, I, I was in sixth grade. I think she was pretty cute, you know, pretty hot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well listen. Okay, uh, this is a good time to say, if you are listening live tonight on November fifteenth, and you would like to talk to Ann Brimner and Doug Brimner, or have a question or comment about their book, I know they'd like to talk to you. The number is six four six seven one six nine nine two two. That's six four six. Seven one six nine nine 
888-346-9422. Blog Talk Radio assures me it's a toll-free call in the continental U.S. Now, we do have a caller here, and so I'm going to bring him here in the genie bottle. Uh, welcome to Madam Perry Salon. How are you? Okay, somebody from the 360 area code. Okay, um, what well, you're on the air, Madam Parasolan. I do know that some people do call, so I'm telling dumb people call just listen uh, on their phones. If you have a question or comment for Ann Bremner or Doug Bremner, go right ahead. But I'm having, but I'm having trouble hearing you on your side, so. Okay, well, I'll keep you right there. Okay, the call dropped. They were having some audio. Try to call back again, uh, maybe from a different phone. We'll get you. All right, right now, this is uh, also need to um, play a little something. If you want, need about a minute or a minute and a half to uh, get a drink of water, we'll be right back. I said we'll be right back. This is our sponsor for this month. Do you enjoy watching movies? Yes! Do you like to hear other people's opinions on movies? And do you find that you don't always have the time to listen to an entire podcast about one movie? Well, then you might enjoy my new podcast, Living for the Cinema. My reviews cover the good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique, but in less than 15 minutes. Check out Living for the Cinema on all platforms where podcasts are available. I mean, the world has gone crazy, right? I mean, this whole pandemic, I I, I don't even know if I'm coming or going anymore. You know what I mean? But the one thing during the pandemic that I found out, right, that was a good thing, was the Madame Perry Salon. I mean, this podcast, right, when you hear her laughing, all you want to do is laugh. When her dog's barking in the background and she's talking to the duck, I'm like, she's going to an interview, and I'm like, this podcast is the best podcast I've ever heard before. You know what I mean? Oh, well, that was a very sweet thing to say. My foe, Sebastian Manifescalco. So, back here with Ann Brimner, J.D., Doug Brimner, M.D., here on Madam Perry Salon, and talking about their fantastic new book, Justice in the Age of Judgment, from Amanda Knox to Brett Kavanaugh, murder to hashtag me too, trials and tribulations in the court of public opinion. Guys, this is such a great book. Thank you. Thanks. What, how long did you, how long did it take to put all these stories together? Because you've got everybody in here. Well, I, I should toot Doug's horn because I went to him for help. I don't know if you know, he majored in English before he went to medical school at Duke and then on to teach at Yale and now at Emory. But he's a great writer. So he's done, done a wonderful job, but he's also added in a lot of the cases, you know, that, that are in there. And have we added in Stillwater yet, Doug? The Stillwater is the postscript. Yeah. Oh, okay. kind of that, that's that movie that was made about Amanda Knox. So I just yeah. want to say that Doug's, Doug's done a tremendous job. I, I was never a real great writer in school. I was, I was 
more of a talker <laughs> than a writer. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but anyway, I just wanted to say that Doug's done a fantastic, superb job. You have Doug. Well, you thanks, both Dan. have. I think, Go ahead. I think that that people that are good speakers, you know, so Anne's obviously a good speaker because she can get up in front of a jury and and make a convincing argument. And, you know, one of the chapters is the first impression is, you know, 80%. And, and, you know, one of the, the way I started that chapter was I said, the first impression is the most important. The opening statement is the most important part of the case. And, and um, so if you're a good writer, you're Jennifer's, you know, or if you're a good speaker, you're probably a good writer. It's just, and probably doesn't have time to sit down and put, you know, put it all down on paper, but, um, you know, the part about the opening statement being the most important is that part of that is like confirmation bias, right? So we kind of, our brains work in a way that we, we see something and then we decide whether what it is right away. And that's kind of a, has survival value because we're sort of trying to figure out if someone's like a threat or not, right? Mm-hmm. And so that carries over into the courtroom and that's why the opening statements are so important. But it's also why how people are painted immediately in the in the media is so important. What Anne writes about and what some of her friends and colleagues that, that are lawyers who know how to do this well, you see a good lawyer, you'll see that they're getting right out there in front of the cameras right away if there's a high profile case because they know that they got to make that they got to get that first impression, you know. And um, right. so there's sort of an art to that goes beyond the courtroom when you have high profile cases like that. What is it about con- right. confirmation bias that that? I mean, how is it created? Why does that stay with us so much? Well, we write you know, in the book about... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. But, no, go ahead, Doug. You got it. So we write in the book about some of the research studies that have been done in the field of psychology. And one of the things that I kind of brought, you know, to the Amanda Knox case was, you know, I've done research on memory and, and how memory can be fallible. And that, that is relevant to course testimony. But in terms of some of the psychology experiments have been done on confirmation bias show that like you could you could do have someone do a test and then tell them that they did the test poorly and then tell them that they someone else that they did it well well they they retain that 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 idea that they did poorly even after you tell them well i was just faking i was kind of lying to you and you really did oh, average it's sort of like with mm-hmm. little kids like if you tell a little kid that he's stupid then they kind of incorporate that and then they start acting like, you know, they're not as smart as the other kids or whatever. And that confirmation bias is, and then you see it with, you know, if you're looking at, um, uh, you know, like politics, like people are looking for confirmation bias that they think that the elections was rigged, the election wasn't rigged. And once they make up their mind, they're looking for things to sort of feed in their their belief. And then they're looking for other people that believe the same as them because it's kind of a more of a comfortable environment. They even form communities online that, you know, give each other support and whatnot. So, you know, that's why the opening statement is so important. And that's why it's so important to, to handle the media. Well, and you're, you're a publicist yourself, Jennifer, so you know Mm -hmm. what I'm talking Mm -hmm. about. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I guess, and of course, I guess, is that similar to what's called a halo effect? Like the first thing you see is is how you, um, or hear someone that's how you think of them from then on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know that could be a dangerous thing. Um, and I have to say, I'm not immune to it because uh, I think I told Doug, I was at Georgia Tech once, a girlfriend of mine was getting her Ph.D., and um, 
I was sitting there. You know how they do the PhDs and, and the masters. And a girl, another friend of uh, hers, we're sitting together and we're watching a woman in the back, and she's she's in the uh, master's group, and she's got a leg up on a chair, and she's talking on the phone, and we're thinking, man, she's here at Tech. She's about to get her, her master's. She's just slacking around. She's on the phone. She can't be bothered. I mean, we were going at it. I'm ashamed to say, but it's the truth. Then when she finally gets up to go, you know, she looks like she's she's probably nine and a half months pregnant, and we felt horrible. We thought, oh, my God, she's sitting <laughs> here for this. And no, Who knows? She's probably thinking, if I have to, how long will it take to get out of here and get to the hospital? You know, and I just, you know, we felt <laughs> like, we felt so, we as, as rotten as we should have felt, you know. And uh, that's always a good lesson. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it's, something, it's just your first impression. It's hard. And even though I like to, I know a little about the media, that you see how people sort of take you and, and, and mold your opinion you know, still, it, it's hard, and you're right, the first person to get out there and say the most. There are some, I don't know what else you would want to talk to about while we're here in the cases, because, oh my gosh, every one of these is an important case that grabbed people. I'm just going to, uh, Scott Peterson, uh, Susan Cox Powell, oh, that story still bugs me. Uh, oh. It, it really does. I, I do want to, I want to say about Susan Cox Powell, that we tried that case to a jury during the pandemic and they were recessed for like five months and the jurors all came back. That was the case against the state of Washington, child protective services mm-hmm, for giving mm-hmm. Susan's boys to the dad, the murderer, and he mm-hmm. killed them. You know, he burned their house down yeah. and killed them with a hatchet. Those jurors came back and awarded us 115 million, the highest verdict against the state in the history of the state. And they didn't bat an eye. They, you know, they, they wanted to be part of something bigger than, than themselves, and, and they were, you know, mm-hmm. for child safety in our state. And I, I, in my whole career, you know, trying cases, that one was the most rewarding. And it was kind of the same thing we're talking about, which is your first impression, you know, is what really sticks. And what it was was those boys getting mm-hmm. killed by their own dad because mm-hmm. they were led, you know, almost like lambs to slaughter by the state workers into his house. And we're not going to let that happen again. Mm-hmm. That's what the jurors said. We're not going to let it happen again. That I certainly hope not. I mean, that what the camping trip in uh, what twenty degree weather that that didn't include somebody yeah. in that Midnight. you might want wanna, that you might not yeah. want to turn them over. I don't know. I the don't know. two and a two year old and a four year old they were in diapers, and their mom was supposedly with them and didn't come back. That's when she disappeared. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just tragic. Yeah, that was one of the most heartbreaking stories. Uh, well, they, they they all can pain you to read, but that's with the little children, two and four. That's heartbreaking. Now, yeah. talk to me about, because this is another one I would like to know more about. Rebecca Sow. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but. Sow. Sow, okay. Uh Talk about that, if you would. Well, she, she was the, – the family contacted me because the, the police wanted to say it was a suicide. Rebecca was mm-hmm. found hanging off a Juliet balcony at the Spreckles Mansion in Coronado. She had a millionaire boyfriend she lived with. A little, his little boy had fallen down the stairs shortly before this and was critical in the hospital. 
Um, she was bound and gagged. She was naked. Of course, she was dead. And and they wanted to call it suicide. And we said, so you can't call it suicide. Nobody can bind their hands and legs, hands behind them, their legs with nautical knots, you know, precision knots, mm-hmm. um, and go up the side of a balcony. And 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 so what what we in our investigation showed was it was part of it was staged that a bed was kind of just picked it up picked up and moved you know that the rope was tied to it wasn't dragged mm-hmm. most importantly I hired Dr Sarah Weck who I had in my Cox case He's, he had the JFK all kinds of Bobby Kennedy everything else from um, Pennsylvania he did a second autopsy which we actually had her exhumed. Um, and she was strangled on the ground. She wasn't, she didn't die from hanging. Mm-hmm. And she had blunt force trauma to her head. Yeah. And he's preeminent pathologist. And so we said this clearly is a homicide. And there were, of course, a lot of other facts. There was painting on the door that said she saved him. Can you save her? Um, there, there was um, evidence of, of, of blood on a knife. Um, there was... Uh, evidence a brother um, of the of the millionaire um, was there and had a motive and there was other evidence connecting him. Long story short, we went all the way to Camilla Harris, who was then the AG, asking for an outside agency to be appointed because the local authorities would not reopen the case, and uh, she turned turned us down. And we had a very detailed investigation that we sent her. So then a oh. civil lawyer, Keith Greer, took it over and tried a case to a civil jury about. A year ago, I think, two years ago, and the brother was found civilly liable. But it's still a mystery. How did this happen? You know, who wanted to kill her? And by the way, little, the little boy Maxie, he passed mm-hmm. tragically right after she was found. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was some speculation that she was blamed for that, but she had nothing to do with it. So it's it's been the kind of the subject of endless documentaries and books and everything else because it's like that game of Clue, like you know, who who killed her? Who would want to kill her? But she definitely did not kill herself. And that was my goal, was to get that case reopened. Yeah, that's when somebody calls that, and, and the first time I read it, calls that suicide. And even if she was performer of Cirque du Soleil, she couldn't have done that to herself. Okay. <laughs> no. And there was no reported, there's been no suicide like this in the history of the world. And by the way, women don't kill themselves this way. They usually like take pills. Women, I know it sounds kind of cliche, but women don't want to like mm-hmm. be out there in front of God and everybody, you oh, know, no. naked and, you know, hung mm. out. I mean, she's very pretty. I don't think she wanted to be seen that way. But yeah, she would have had to been in Cirque du Soleil to do that. And she, of course she wasn't. So mm. it was not a suicide. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's, that's the kind of thing when somebody says that to you, well, this is obviously a suicide. You know, that's the kind of thing where I look at them. All right, don't wee on my back and tell me it's raining. How stupid do I look to you? <laughs> I know, I know, exactly, exactly. Oh, God. Exactly. So frustrating. That's heartbreaking. Um, by the way, for people listening live, if you've tuned in a little bit later, I'm talking to Ann Bremner, J.D., Doug Bremner, M.D., about their book, um, Justice in the Age of Judgment. Now, some of the titles are, are, say, Amanda Knox and Justice in the Age of Judgment, uh, which is the title. Yeah, we're, still, the, working the title on, we're still working on it. Okay. That was an, that's, an, that's an advanced review copy, but, yeah, we're, any suggestions are welcome. Okay. 
<laughs> well, originally it was called Amanda Knox, and then and then it sort of the the most recent um, book cover I gave you, Jennifer, is, is the mm-hmm. you know the title is Justice in the Age of Judgment because it you know that this was the theme that really went beyond Amanda Knox, and and mm-hmm. you know her case was very right. important. Um, but you know we we um, we expanded a number. There are a number of other cases that Anne's been involved in that were that you know the public is interested in. You know you mentioned Susan Cox Powell, and she has some unique insights into that because she was, you know, she was a litigant in in, in that case, and she was covering as a correspondent O.J. Simpson and Michael Jackson, and and so we're able to kind of you know find this thread of you know this this theme that the effect of social media and on high-profile criminal cases and both the good and the bad, you know? Um, and so that's, that's how that, that title has changed. All right. And it's, by the way, it's published by Skyhorse, distributed by Simon and Schuster and can be found. It will be found anywhere. Good books are sold. Um, gosh, so many more in here. You, you just got to get this book. Uh, she talked about Barefoot Bandit, Top Mom. Top Mom, isn't that the name that um, – um, Nancy Grace. Nancy Grace, yeah, I should say that, Nancy yeah. Grace. <laughs> hey, <well>, Top Mom. <laughs> I like how she <laughs> – yeah, I like how Nancy – sometimes when I have several people, like on a panel, I end up I – I do my Nancy Grace where I have to identify each person by what they do first before they speak every single time. But, yeah, Top Mom um, – what happened to Top Mom? She was acquitted. Oh. Well, the now background now of the case is that, Go ahead. The yeah. background of the case is that uh, it's, Top Mom was the name that Nancy Grace gave to Casey Anthony, and Casey Anthony was kind of, you may remember that she was on the newspaper showing how she was dancing in this hot body contest. Well, meanwhile, her, her, um, her baby was missing and, and it started out with the call to 911 where the she'd been missing for a month and then she showed up and then her, her right. mother had this, there was this strange story about Juanita or someone who had been babysitting her, the baby and Danny the, the, the nanny babysitter. Nanny. Yeah. The, yeah, the nanny and the, the nanny had disappeared. And, and um, so basically the, to make a long story short, they eventually found the baby out in the woods and, and, Casey Anthony came home after living with a boyfriend for a month, and she had this car that smelled like it had a dead body. A dead body had been in the in the trunk, but she was, um, you know, the prosecutor tried to make her look like, you know, she's just a bad person, and we should convict her for that reason. And and as Anne pointed right. out, um, you know, that's not good enough. You know, you really have to make mm-hmm. a case, and she was acquitted as a result. It, yeah. ah. In the in the book by. Um... Diane Fanning was on the show uh, after she wrote the book about Casey Anthony. And, I mean, she could that girl could take a lie as far as she could. When they were going to take her to her job that she says she had, they get all the way into this place with the police and, okay, where's your desk? Okay, well, actually, I don't work here. That's a long way to go right. with a lie, to go all the way in. <laughs> I know. Because <laughs> they're letting them in because it's the cops are with her. But, okay, where's your desk? Okay, actually, I don't. Have a job <laughs> at all, right. and the poor nanny, Zanny the nanny, it ruined her reputation and gave her a hard time. Yep. Okay, now in in 
the description and the title we mentioned. And I guess, too, this is because you've, I know we've all seen pictures on the news the last few days of side-by-side photos of Brett Kavanaugh and Kyle Rittenhouse crying. <laughs> How did things like <laughs> I don't know if it's one of those like those like in the fashion things. Who wore it better? I don't know. Oh yeah, right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, you know that's uh, that. Tell me how you think people perceive that first. Is that that's that one of those things too, where there's a uh, a confirmation bias, where people already have their minds made up and nothing oh, yeah. they say or do can change it. You, know, you see these accounts of people in Hollywood saying he was that crying wasn't real or wasn't persuasive, and and we've been covering this case on Court TV, you know. And then other people say, "Oh my gosh, it looked like he had PTSD and he was reliving the horror of what happened." You know, I mean, it, it just people are very polarized in the Rittenhouse case. That's why they have all these National Guard troops there. I mean, it's there's going to be unrest. I mean, that people either think this is self-defense. You know, he had no choice or other people think, you know, he's just a vigilante murderer and, and he's a big crybaby and he was faking it on the stand. Hmm. You know, when, uh, I was going to ask too, whenever you see someone and of course, um, like with SNL, I think they had, uh, Matt Damon as <laughs> Brett Kavanaugh. Did you see that? Yeah, I think I saw yeah, some, some of it. <laughs> yeah. And I know I looked at it because somebody on Twitter said, you know, if he if he doesn't deserve respect as an actor after this, I, I don't know what. <laughs> but then <laughs> yeah. again, you know, but of course that's of course that's that's um you're you're preaching you're you're, talk, you're talking it down an echo chamber. These are people who already feel the same way you feel about it. But exactly. And I used to say, you know, with some people, once Mike goes, why don't people think this way? Why don't people think that way about him? And I used to say, you know, only a hot mic at the right time or the wrong time would change people's opinion. But that's not true anymore. Right. Yeah. So what yeah. – um, was it, Doug? What do you want or expect? What is What is the takeaway that most of us are going to come – uh, away with after we read Justice in the Age of Judgment. You want to start it's that? The, yeah, sure. It's, it's the effect of, um, you know, the powerful effect of, of the social media and and um, of of and of the press that can sway um, sway opinion and, and public opinion in a way that is not always necessarily in the in the service of justice. I I I agree, and I love that quote in To Kill a Mockingbird when Attica said, "You know, we're not all created equal." You know, he said, "Some ladies bake better pies, some people are paupers, and some are as rich as Rockefellers." But one place we're all created equal is in a courtroom. And my takeaway, I hope that people have, is that that's where we really need to go: is back mm-hmm. to courtrooms and respecting that process. And, and not deciding cases based on everything else except for what's in the courtroom because that's where the rules of evidence apply. That's where we hear from witnesses under oath. 
and it's an excellent system that we have. And we've just mm-hmm. gotten away with it or, or get, gotten away from it with these sensational trials. And it's very, very dangerous. Rittenhouse, you know, could be one of them. I don't know yet. Kavanaugh, mm-hmm. that, that was another one. I mean, it's just, you know, people can be absolutely vilified and for life. You know, it doesn't, it's not just what happened in the coverage. It's for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. And we want to make sure that we're fair. We don't cancel people unfairly. We don't decide things by a byline or a column or a perp walk or anything like that. But we decide things fully and fairly based on true evidence. All right. Well, thank you, Ann Bremner and Doug Bremner. Ann, I wanted to have you on for so long. Uh, please, Thanks. please know you'll always have a place here in the genie bottle. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and an honor. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, and likewise. And so and there'll always be a nice cushion here for you. You notice your brother had a big cushion here uh, with his name yeah, and yeah. because, yeah, he's, he's a member of the club. Uh, and, and he's going to be back, I think, in December uh, to talk about movie, Inheritance Absolutely. Italian. Huh? Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, All the best to you. Much success with this book. And of course, as always, I look for everything else that that both of you do. Um, Can't wait. So I know you'll be back soon. And to everyone out there, uh, be good to yourself. Be good to each other. I think you're wonderful. And get this book, Justice in the Age of Judgment by Ann Brimner and Doug Brimner. Bye-bye, everyone. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.